Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Many of you know that when you um, study God's word, that it's very important that you remember that the paragraphs and the verse divisions are not in the original. Did you know that? It's not like the Apostle Paul said, okay, I think they'll stop at chapter 4, 23, and now we'll start chapter 5. They were put in, the chapter divisions were put in by medieval monks who wanted to make it easier for us to find certain passages in the Bible. And there are times when you read the Bible where the chapter divisions do not actually help you in interpreting what it means. This is one such example. I think that the medieval monks actually got this wrong, and many scholars agree with me on this, that the chapter division should not be right here between uh, verse 32 of chapter 4 and verse 1 of chapter 5, but it actually should be back up earlier, perhaps after verse 24 of chapter, four, of chapter 4. All that Paul has told us so far in the book of Ephesians has been about what God has done for his people, about how he is laying the foundation for us, how he's digging the trenches, how he's laying those sewer lines. Long before we are ever told what we must do, as Harlan just read, we are reminded what Jesus Christ has done for us. So the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about what God does. And the last three chapters of Ephesians are all about what therefore we do out of joy and gratitude and thankfulness because of what Christ has done. And if you get those confused, you have something, but you do not have the gospel. Can you imagine if you were to have a house and you were to begin to hang pictures on the wall, but your foundation wasn't stable? It wasn't flat. It wasn't level. If you begin to, you know, um, build things inside of a house where you're not sure if the walls are going to fall down when the next storm comes. It would be horrible. You'd live on edge all the time. And so in preparing for this message, I was going to blow through chapter 5 very quickly, and it just dawned on me that we need to just sit and settle our hearts on what he says in verse 1 and 2. And so we're going to do that. We're going to slow down, and we're going to be in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Ephesians all the way through the end of the year. And the point that I want to make is this, that when God continually gives us ethical commands, like he does in chapter 5, don't be sexually immoral, watch your mouth, right? Be careful about your greediness. He does that coming out of verses 22, 23, and 24 of chapter 4. If you have your Bibles open, flip back to 22, 23, and 24 of chapter 4. 
He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Every ethical command bubbles up out of what Christ has done for us as his people. There are two divisions of the Bible. What are they? We say the Old Testament and the New Testament. But you know what? Martin Luther actually challenged that notion. Did you know that? He said the two sections of Scripture aren't the old and the new. They're the law and the gospel. The law tells us what we cannot do but what the Lord requires. And the gospel reminds us what Jesus has done. And out of that resource, we're then able to live the life that God calls us to live. We must get that. And so this morning, I just want us to sit on verse 1 of chapter 5. And I want us to look at what does it mean to be an imitator of God? And what does it mean to be his beloved children? What does it mean to imitate God? And what does it mean to be a beloved child of God? Are you ready? So keep your Bibles open in your laps and let's look. The word imitate in the original Greek literally is the word mimic. It's the word copycat. It's the word model. And, and it's the word lookalike. And you know, you know all about this. You know that when you get a job at a college or at a high school, you know that very rarely will your uh, education prepare you for your job. Very rarely, no matter how technical the skills were that you learned in your educational facility, when you get out in the real world, you have to find somebody to mentor you, to shape you. You have to find somebody to help you see what you need to do. It's that way, in the, it's that way when you're a young preacher. It's, a, it's that way no matter really what your calling is. Like most ministers, you can listen to them and you can tell the influences in their life because they sound like they're people that they've listened to or that have taught, coached them or taught them. It's like that in every one of our callings before we find our voice, as it were. And grandmothers know this too, don't they? Like what is it that every grandmother has somewhere tucked away in the closets of their house? They bring out the beloved dress-up box. And those kids go to that dress-up box and they dress up like grandma, like mommy or like daddy, and they put on the big jewels and they put on the earrings and the boys, you know, don the Iron Man outfits and they run like crazy savages throughout the house fighting, you know, the lords of evil. We, we know what it's like. This is part and parcel of what it means to be human, to model ourselves after someone. In fact, you know that scholars, not Christian scholars, but scholars in general, so that one of the distinguishing factors between animals and humans is humans' ability to mimic. Isn't that interesting? And it's like when you, when you go to Walmart, like guys, when you go to Walmart this Tuesday and you're getting your black powder or your arrows because, you know, the season opens on Tuesday, when you're going to Walmart, you walk through those plate glass doors, you see your reflection, but it's kind of dirty, you don't really see yourself clearly. But then you go to your bathroom mirror and you look at your, and you see yourself clearly, right? That is a true image of yourself, except for one very important thing that I'll come back to and talk about in just a minute. We sometimes see those bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And we kind of think they're trite and cute, but there's a very real sense at which they are biblical, aren't they? 
I know sometimes we make fun of it, but they just say what verse 1 of chapter 5 says. It says, just be like God. What would God do? One of the, um, one of the challenges, I think, for us as we grow in the Christian life is to know what does it look like? How do we grow? How do we become more and more like God? Theologians have a fancy word for this. They call it the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God. You know, those are big words, but you know those words. I mean, you hear it sometimes on the news about diseases around the world. You have communicable and incommunicable diseases, right? What what does that mean? It means that there are some diseases that you can catch, and there are some diseases that you can't. There are some aspects of God's character that you can catch, And there are some aspects of God's character that are incommunicable attributes that you cannot catch. So, for example, God's, um, his omnipotence means that God is all-powerful. And it it doesn't just mean that he's all-powerful, but it means that everything that has power derives its power from God, who is omnipotent or omniscient. It doesn't just mean that God knows everything. It means that everything that has knowledge derives their knowledge ultimately from God himself. Or God's aseity. There's a fancy word called the the aseity of God. It just means that God is self-contained, that he's self-sufficient. Everything that has independence derives its independence from God, who is himself. One with a saity. Um, we are called to imitate God. To imitate his communicable attributes. Those things that we can catch. What can we catch? We can catch God's righteousness. And we can catch God's holiness. And we can catch his purity. Although imperfectly this side of death but that's what he calls us to do do you remember um anybody watch the office in here like you remember that you remember the first time kelly kapoor shows up on the office it's like diversity day at the office and kelly kapoor you know she's um you know she's played by mindy kaling and you know there's the boss michael right played by stephen carell in the show and and Kelly Kapoor, you know, she just says what is on her mind. And so she says to Michael, this flamboyant, this really insecure manager, right, who's supposed to be like every manager in the world, you know. And, and he says, uh, she says to Steve Carell, she goes, you are so self-righteous. Like, who do you think you are, God? And, and Michael goes, well, I've got to model myself after somebody. <laughs> that in some ways is what, is what, Paul is trying to help us do. Model yourself after those communicable attributes of God because he loves you. Now, in the back to that mirror image, you know, when you look at yourself in a mirror, it is a true reflection of who you are, isn't it? It is. Except that you're three-dimensional. And that mirror, no matter how honest it is, is only two dimensions. And the shadows that dance across your face give you the impression that you're three, but you're, it's just a reflection. It's the same way with the Lord. 
we can reflect God as accurately as we know how. But you know what? God is three-dimensional. And no matter how badly we want to look like God this side of glory, he has aspects of his nature that you cannot pick up simply by modeling your life after him. But how is a mirror made? How is it produced? You don't just go out to the woods and come back with a brand new mirror, do you? No, a mirror is made by grinding sand, by pulverizing sand very, very finely. It's made by grinding something down. It's the same way that God makes you into his image. If you trust in Jesus Christ, if you, by faith, lean to him for your identity and your salvation, he grinds you down over time to look more and more like him. And listen, I know your stories, and many of you know my own. We have been ground down. Some of us are being, we're between mortal and pestle right now, like we've never been in our life, being ground, being pulverized by a Savior who loves us who is shaping us more and more into his image in love. That's what Paul says in chapter 1 of Ephesians. When you come to faith in Christ, there is a declaration that's pronounced over you that you are forgiven. That's the negative aspect of our justification, that your sins are taken away as far as the east is from the west. But you're also giving the positive aspects of our justification. You're giving Jesus' very righteousness that you take on his credit. And so when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see Blake Altman, a messed up sinner. He sees the righteousness of his son and he loves you because he sees the glory and grandeur of his son's righteousness when he looks at you. But through troubles and hardships, through the grinding work of the Spirit's work in our life, he makes us more and more into his image so that we begin to reflect more clearly those communicable, those, if you will, two-dimensional aspects of who the Lord is. Does that make sense? He is working in you to grind you into his image because he loves you, because of all that he has done for you. We are called to be imitators of God. But if I ended the sermon right here, we would all walk out with this crushing burden of to-dos. I've got I've to watch my mouth. We'll talk about that next week. I've got to watch my, uh, my mind. I've got to remain sexually pure. We'll talk about that next week. I've got to be careful about my greed. We'll talk about You'd walk out of here with a burden because you cannot live up to that unless you read the second half of the verse, which says, as beloved children. As beloved children. There was, a, um, there was a little boy who grew up in Houston, who grew up in a very, very abusive home. It was ugly, it was horrible. You would never, ever wish this on your worst enemy. His mother gave him alcohol when he was old enough to drink instead of milk. There would be men in the house full of cigarette smoke. When the baby would cry, the men would pick up the child, shake him, and blow the smoke right in his face. This little boy would be left at home while the mother went out with men 
And one day when the boy was four years old, he, he remembers, one of his earliest memories, he remembers a man in blue coming into his house and taking him out of his house, who he later remembers was a policeman, and putting him in a foster home where he lived for about a year. Before another couple in Houston adopted the Lawrences, they adopted this little baby boy, and they changed his name to Bill Lawrence. And this little baby boy had to learn how to be a Lawrence, how to grow into his new identity as Bill Lawrence. And I can remember sitting in seminary, listening to my professor, Bill Lawrence, in my spiritual formation class, tell the story about his life and say, if you think that when you become a Christian, you take on your new identity and things are fine and dandy, you're deceived and you have not read the New Testament. Because you can ask my wife, Sometimes I wake up in cold sweats because I had nightmares that I'm back in that smoke-filled room as a four-year-old boy and I cannot find my mother. We are beloved children of God. That's why we're planting this church. That God has called us and he has said, you are my child if you believe in me. That means that I love you. That means that you don't have to perform for me all the time and wear yourself out. It means that I love you. And do you know what the marks are of a beloved child? Do you know the marks? There are four marks of a beloved child. I'm just going to rattle them off, and then we're going to close. The first mark of a beloved child of God is acceptance. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. In Ezekiel 20, there's a story that, where the Lord is saying through Ezekiel that like a fragrant aroma, maybe Paul was thinking about this when he wrote verse 2, like a fragrant aroma, I accept you and I love you because you are my people. There's acceptance. The difference between a child and an employee is you can fire an employee, but you can't fire a child. That child is yours and you love them. You love them. There was a friend of mine who was sitting at a campus in the Northeast, and he was looking out over Boston, over the river, and he said he saw three different kinds of students come out of the classrooms. And one kind of student were the kind of students, you know, maybe you were like this, where you've got this huge backpack full of books, and you're lugging it to your next class. And they're just, they're really concerned about what the professor thinks of them, and they're striving, they're type A's. And he called them the strivers. And then there was another kind of student that was at Harvard at the time when he said that were not the Strivers, but they were the Legacies. They were the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers. They were the Iacocas. They were the ones who, don't you know who my daddy is? Like, don't you know who my granddaddy is? They believe that they deserve to be there because of who they were, their family. But then he said that the, there are a third kind of students. They were the students who would come out of the class, and as the sun was setting, over the river, the strivers would be looking at the cement, counting the cracks as they go to the next class. The legacies would, you know, be trying to beg for everybody's attention. But the children of grace came out of their class, and he said that he saw students that were like, oh my gosh, look at the sunset. And they just sat there and looked at how beautiful the sunset was. And he just gazed at how awesome it was to go to a school like that. 
that in the very same way is much like the church. You've got people in the church that are strivers, that feel like God is going to fire them any week. And they constantly have to perform for him. Brothers, sisters, that is not the gospel. He accepts you. He can't fire you. You're his child. And you don't deserve to be here. You're not a legacy. The Lord knew you. He didn't just know your parents, although he may have known them as well. But he called you to be his child. You are a child of grace. And you have this attitude of, I can't believe I even got in this. You feel like it's an accident that the admissions committee actually let you in. We are called to be children of grace. The second mark of a child who is a beloved child of God is not just acceptance, but it's access, right? You, know, as in a, you may know your boss really, really well, and you may be you know, cool with him, but um, try walking into your boss's bathroom when he's taking a shower. <laughs> or try going into your boss's bedroom at 2 a.m. asking for a glass of water. See how that goes. Children have access to us in ways that employees do not. Like, we have the ability, we, can, we have access to the God of the universe through what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so, though I carry many insecurity and superiority complexes, and so do you, we can lay and be honest about those because we have access. We don't need to try to earn God's merit and favor. We've got it. There's a woman in Tulsa, her name is Susan Ford. You may recognize that last name because she was the daughter of President Gerald Ford. And President Ford only had one deal with his daughter when he was president. That was, Susan, you can come interrupt me anytime you want if it's important. And so there were times when she would come into the Oval Office in the middle of, like, meetings with her father, who was the president of the United States, and he would take her. There's pictures in time of him holding his daughter and loving her. That's the way, that's the image you should have in your mind of the way your Savior loves you. Do you know how much he enjoys you? Like in John 17, it says that he prays for us because he enjoys us and he wants us to be in with the Father. Jesus enjoys you. He's not mad at you. He loves you like his child. And he gives you access to all that is his. And when Susan Ford was a senior in high school, they were struggling over where do they have the high school prom. And you know what Susan Ford did? You may remember, I think I mentioned this before. Susan Ford had her entire high school class throw a huge party for the prom in the East Room of the White House. Now that's access. You are accepted in Jesus Christ. You have access to God through Christ. The third mark of somebody who's a child of God is that you're protected. You know how, you know how when you're a parent, like it's hard to keep your mitts off your kids, like you're always wanting to touch their, you know, stroke their hair, you're always wanting to hold their hand, right? Why? We, there's just something about us as parents that want to hold our children. It's the same with Jesus. He wants to protect you. He has fought the battles for you over sin and death, and he will one day conquer sin forever when he comes to make all things new. He, is de- he has already done it in the cross, but he will do it in reality whenever we are brought into glory with him. We will no longer sin. 
He has fought the battle for us. He protects you. He loves you. That's why his hands are always all over you. But it's because he loves you. He's holding you. And it feels to us like grinding sand. But it's your Savior getting his big paws around you saying, I love you. Do you trust me? We are accepted, friends, as beloved children. We have access. We are protected. And lastly, the fourth quality of a son and not a slave is that we are heirs. We are heirs with God. We are co-heirs with Christ. Some of you who... um, purge on ESPN like I do may have seen that they are doing this series on SEC stories right now. And one of the stories that they're telling is about the first football family in America, right? You know, everybody knows who that is, right? The, the Mannings, right? Archie Manning, Peyton Manning, Eli Manning. And they're doing this incredible story about their life. But what most people didn't realize, and I didn't either, is that the, the, the interesting twist of the story is that there's actually a third Manning brother. His name is Cooper. He's the oldest. And when Cooper, who was the best athlete among them, was a senior in high school, he hurt his neck. And it took him months to recover. He had to learn to walk again. He could never play football. He gave up his dream of going to Old Miss to play football like his dad. And his younger brother, who was just a freshman in high school at the time, his name was Peyton. And Peyton took on his brother's number and he wore his brother's jersey number to play football for Cooper. And Eli came after uh, Peyton and did the exact same thing, wore Cooper's number. And the amazing thing about this story, go watch it, it's on, on ESPN. The amazing thing about this story is that Cooper Manning is sitting there telling his story about how he, was, he had all the potential in the world, and yet he broke his neck and he couldn't go on. But Archie Manning never treated Cooper any different than Peyton or Eli. And it gave Cooper the ability to go on with his life because he knew that even though everybody had written him off as an athlete, his daddy loved him and cared for him and made him an heir just as much as his brothers who now are household names. We are Cooper Mannings, don't you see? And the Lord has given us the glories of his sons and his daughters the glory of all that he possesses because of the righteousness of somebody else. Jesus Christ, your Savior. So friends, before we go into verses 3 to 6, like we're going to go in next week, camp out on verse 1, that you are a beloved child of God. Look yourself in the mirror this week And say, Jesus loves you just the way you are. You do not have to clean yourself up. He takes you as you are. Believe the gospel because some of you have forgotten it. Know that your Savior loves you. He's adopted you. He's given you all the acceptance you could ever want. He has given you access to him. He protects you. And you are an heir. So as you go and watch Preston Lakes 3 being built, and as you see the bricks being laid and the mortar being put between them, just remember that long before you ever decorate your house, 
long before you ever begin to put on the good deeds, there has been a groundwork laid for you that makes those deeds of righteousness beautiful because there's a stable foundation. And that foundation was laid by none other than the one who became marred beyond human appearance so that he might die for you. And some of you may never have realized that Christ died for you. And this morning, he's calling you to faith in him. And some of you have forgotten that Jesus loves you. It's so simple that you don't have to perform for him, that he loves you because he loves you. You're the apple of his eye because of what Christ did on your behalf. Amen? Rest in that truth, friends, and you'll begin to look and act like God calls us to look and act in joy and in gratitude for that is what we're called to be and do. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to be people who reflect your character, who reflect your communicable attributes in our purity, in the way that we talk, in our sexuality, as we're going to talk about next week. Lord, remind us, remind us that all of those commands are given to us to remind us that we are beloved children of God, accepted. We do not have to do those things to earn your favor, Lord Christ. Thank you that you fought the battles for us that we could never fight. And help us, therefore, to do the right thing, to love people, to not always try to get one up on somebody else, to suffer for your namesake joyfully because we are beloved children of God, heirs of the triune God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, that is the greatest news in all the world. Help us to live like we believe that. And now, Lord, as you bless the gifts we're about to receive, we pray that you'll do so to extend your kingdom. And thank you for the privilege of participating with you and bringing the gospel to Owasso and to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.